When you're trading options, Fidelity has just what you need with straightforward but powerful tools to help you select a strategy and execute your ideas. And they offer a wide range of information and insights to help simplify your trading experience. Have a question? Ask it live during their small classes and coaching sessions. Need information? Check out their educational videos, articles, and webinars. See why it's easy to trade options your way at Fidelity. Start now at fidelity.com options iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of the On the Tape podcast. That is Liz we Young. We have fun before everything. Hello. That is Liz Young. Oh, hello, everybody. EY from SoFi. Guy Christopher Adami. You and I are both rocking some dueling sort of uh, Johnny Cash uniforms here. And we got a lot to cover um, on a big market week after last week, which was a big market week. Welcome, people. What up? How you doing? Uh, good. A uh, little housekeeping really quickly. Guy and I had a great conversation with Kara Swisher. She is the author of the new book that's coming out this week called The Burn Book. And if you want a copy of that book for free, go over to your favorite podcast store, leave mm. a review for the OK Computer podcast, follow it, send a screenshot to contact at risk reversal, and we're going to send a book to the first 100 people who do that. We had a great combo, Guy. Just really quickly, Kara Swisher, to you and me, we just think of her in, in a very fine fashion. She's come on the pod. I think it was, what, her fifth time on the pod with you and me. We spent a lot of time with her just on the front row seat that she's had covering tech for the last 25 years, internet in particular. What were some of the quick takeaways? Because we're going to put, I think, a five to 10 minute clip at the end of this podcast, and then we're going to ask you to go over and follow the OK Computer and listen to it there Wednesday when it drops. Well, one of the many things I love about Swish is she doesn't suffer fools. She makes the exception for me. But with that said, you know, she really likes to push back. And, you know, I just think her honesty and her understanding of the material and the way that she can make it accessible and synthesize it for people, I think is is really great. And, you know, she's somewhat self-deprecating. I don't think she realizes how important she is, but 
know, the conversations she's had over the years and the interviews she's done, and obviously now this book, she is one of those people, again, I say this all the time, you do not have to necessarily agree with her, but you should absolutely lis- listen to her. Yeah, no doubt. It makes you think either either way. Um, so I appreciate that too. We had a great conversation with Kara. That's going to drop in the OK Computer feed on Wednesday. So please go check that out. And if you want a free book, you know what to do there, people. All right, Liz. Over the weekend, there's uh, some of these things partying like it's 1999, partying like it's the 90s. That's from Ed Yardeni, John Authors of, of the Bloomberg Opinion was the 99 bit. We got Goldman Sachs, their strategist, uh, you know, nailing multiple calls here. The economy looks healthy. m and back. And then yours one that you're kind of interested in with Amazon going into the Dow. We'll hit that. But we also this week have a lot of economic data. We have PCE. I know there's been a heavy focus on inflation data and what that means for the Fed and what they may or may not do. And then a bunch of earnings. We're not done with retail earnings and there's a few tech earnings. Liz, what is most important to you as you think about this week? A week that sees the S&P 500 close last week, basically an all-time high, just below 5,100. It's up nearly 7% of the year. And also, you know, the NASDAQ 100 up the same amount as the S&P 500 on the year. That's not something, Liz, that we have seen a whole heck of a lot in these big up years. So talk to us a little bit about that. We're still riding these like feel-good hormones of NVIDIA from last week and the (laughs) euphoria of it. And I think that's okay. I mean, it it was good news. It was like, was happy that they beat on earnings. It was, their guidance was pretty good. I think both of you said it. There's not a whole lot not to like about that report. The market agreed. And here we are. We had a record-breaking week, but now it's sort of back to normal. There's no big earnings report that's going to change the face of the market this week. But we do have some economic data. As you know, I obsess over economic data. The big story will be PCE, as it should be, but that doesn't happen till Thursday. We're going to get consumer confidence before then. And consumer confidence has been equally as strong and equally as euphoric. Remember that those surveys, Conference Board in particular, cues more off of the labor market. So if consumers feel good about their employment situation, they're going to answer that pretty positively. That's the one we're getting this week. University of Michigan is called Consumer Sentiment. Same thing, different name, right? But it cues more off of inflation. So as inflation is coming down, University of Michigan is going to look good. Here's what could happen this time. Because we haven't really gotten any bad labor news, I think people are feeling it. Maybe we can talk about that later. People are feeling it, but it's not being reported. Since we haven't gotten bad news, I don't expect conference boards reading to be hurt at this point. But if and when we hear from the University of Michigan, that one could take it on the chin a little bit because we saw this resurgence in inflation in January. So I just I say that to remind people that those surveys are really difficult to look at one month at a time. The surveys are taken over a one week period, and it's very dependent on how somebody feels between Monday and Friday of that week. So even by the time we get the data, it's not all that useful anymore. You know, it's interesting. There's so many things to be obviously encouraged by, and I get it, the broader market being obviously number one on the list. And then the flip side of that coin is all the things that we've talked about now seemingly for the last couple of years. In my opinion, not a lot of them have gotten all that much better. Some of them gotten worse. And, you know, Elizabeth and I seemingly, we get bogged down in this yield curve. But as we sit here on the precipice of March, and I believe this Friday will be March 1st. You know, we're talking about twos, tens that have now backed to 40-ish basis points of inversion, which, again, is historic in a word. And you go back and look over time, you know, the flip side of that coin is when you start to, as Elizabeth has said a number of times, it's when you start to re-steepen is when you have to worry. The problem, of course, is 
Now, we've tried to do that re-steepening thing a month and a half, two months ago, only obviously to see the inversion catch some tailwinds again. I don't know what that means. I'm hard-pressed to believe that it's good. In addition to that, who's that old guy that lives in Nebraska, middle of the country? Dan? Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, that's correct. I just saw that he now, Berkshire Hathaway, has about $168 billion of cash sitting around. And there's something called the Buffett indicator. There are many indicators out there. But the one thing that he seemingly looks at is the market cap of the entire U.S. equity market divided by GDP is a ratio that he looks at. And I won't bore you. I'll get right to sort of the lead and say it's about 180 or so percent, which in every instance is a flashing red signal. I will tell you that, you know, anything north of 125 percent is typically a warning sign. And here we are about 180 percent. So you can look at all the things you want. There are a lot of things to be encouraged by, but there are a lot of things you have to look at and say, hey, what's really going on here? And what are some of the smartest people out there see that maybe the rest of the market is not seeing? By the way, Jamie Dimon, I think, saw stock in JP Morgan in a meaningful way for the first time in quite some time. Again, just add that on top of Bezos and Zuckerberg and some of these other people. Nothing wrong with it, nothing nefarious, but obviously they're seeing some things out there. Well, it's interesting. Um, I guess it's the first time ever that he has sold stock, but this was previously um, scheduled. Okay. He just so happened to do it at a day that the stock was making a new all-time high. Good on you, Jamie Dimon. And I do think you recall, Guy, was back in 2015 or 16, he bought a slug of stock when it was at uh, like the 10 year low or something like that. You know, it's interesting, guys. I've been reading a lot about changing global demographics and and, and a lot going on with geopolitics and, and the like here. And, and I've kind of like, I'm no economist and guy, you and I've talked a, a lot about these topics with Danny Moses and, and a lot of our guests on, on the tape and obviously with Liz over the last couple of years or so. It seems like there are some changes afoot in the global economy. Um, and it seems that the U.S. is interestingly, like no matter who is in the White House, like really well exposed to a bunch of these changes, right? And so, you know, reshoring is going to be a thing. I, I, I guess I'm kind of changing my tune over the last few months or so as far as what the U.S. economy is able to withstand as it relates to rates going higher, what real rates are and the like. That doesn't mean I'm changing my tune about the, the stock market, but it does actually change what some folks think, right, valuations might be and the like. And I know it's really easy to kind of make these sorts of like, assumptions, you know what I mean, at these sorts of times and the like. And that's what brings me a little bit to this kind of note. And guy, I missed this, okay? You were, I think about a week and a half ago on Stephanie Rule's 11th hour on MSNBC. And it was a great conversation. And I tweeted it out this morning and I don't do much tweeting, but you were, what do they call it? Straight fire, the kids say. It was like, Liz, a fire uh, no, emoji. No, no, no. Nobody says that. Yes, they nobody, do. Nobody, yes, nobody. they do. Okay. And People it was, should be incarcerated if they say anyway, please. <laughs> it was a great segment. And I got to tell you, as Guy has been on fast money, Liz, since the very first day that it aired in 2007, even before that when it was a segment. And I love seeing Guy out of the fast money element. I love seeing Guy out of the on the tape element. You were so good. I'm shocked that they didn't just give you a show on MSNBC. I mean that, okay? But the segment Guy, okay, was about like, why aren't Americans feeling better about the economy, okay? One input was the market and risk assets, and that's why you were on that panel. But talk to me about that, okay? Because this is like a really important thing. It's gonna be politicized as we get deeper into this election year, but we have unemployment at 50-year lows. We have wages at a decent level, and I know that's kind of nuanced, and there's our above inflation rate. Inflation's been coming down, and we can go on and on and on. 
what the hell is going on here? Because it can't just be politics, guy. No, it's not politics. I don't believe that's the case at all. I mean, I think people feel poorly about things because I think front and center is inflation, which again, you said it's coming down and I get it. And I don't want to play this sort of nuance or semantics game, but the reality is it's not coming down. It's just going up less fast. And the cumulative effect of inflation under the Biden administration, now you're talking about close to 19 and a half percent since he took office. Now, this is not a knock on him. And I said this on Stephanie's show, the seeds were sown long before that. When again, under the Trump administration, the Fed cut rates, and then they did what I think was a very mistimed tax cut. With all that said, I mean, this has been in place for quite some time, but Americans are not stupid. I mean, they see the prices that they're paying. And when they're paying 26% more for their auto insurance or 10% more for their prescription drugs, and the list goes on and on, you can flash on the screen that we're winning the war of inflation all you want, but people know better. And I think that's why people are hurting. And you point about wage growth. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the numbers, it's probably true. But as I mentioned on Steph's show, in the private sector, wage growth is not keeping up at all. A lot of the growth, a lot of the improvements we've seen on the government side of the equation, which again is fine. These are human beings as well. But for most people out there, they see what's going on. They're feeling the burden and they're not inspired by this economy at all. And then they see a stock market that makes all-time highs seemingly every day. And it's very hard for people to understand and reconcile that, Dan. Well, I think one of the things, too, let's keep in mind, when people are looking at this data, they see the headlines, right? And I think this is a moment in time in society where there are so many individual investors and just Main Street Americans looking at headlines about economic data, about the markets, paying attention and, and understanding it a lot better, which I think is great. But they look at the headlines and they hear things like, okay, food inflation is down. It's back down to normal levels. And then they look at their grocery bill and they're like, says who, right? Groceries are still a lot more expensive than they were two years ago. And I think maybe it's starting to feed into this sort of where is this data coming from? And the whole unemployment at all time lows, allegedly, I just did a piece a couple of weeks ago on the state level unemployment. There's a lot of big states with rising unemployment, also some big states with stable unemployment, but even still rising just less fast than some of the others. So again, it's allegedly unemployment at an all-time low, but there's there's people being laid off. It's happening in certain industries more than others. So I think there, there might start to be this disconnect. And then Guy, to your point, then the stock market hits all-time highs. Well, we know that a lot of stock exposure, a lot of stock exposure is geared towards or is maybe weighted by wealthier Americans. And people feel like they're getting squeezed out, Dan. I mean, they're frustrated and they feel as if you know they're getting squeezed out. They're, they're seeing everybody else allegedly doing well, and they're sitting around looking at each other at their dinner table saying, why are we not participating in what supposedly is this wonderful economy? And people are, they're upset. And it's manifest, again, politics bore the shit out of me, but you look at the approval rating of the Biden administration just on the economy alone, and it's probably south of 35%, which if you think about what's gone on over the last couple of years, it should be at least 50%, if not higher. So clearly there's some disconnect. Yeah. There. And Guy, we started this conversation by you saying, and you made this great point, and it was kind of funny to see some of the comments from the MSNBC hit. And, and what I loved about that hit was that that's not a, a conversation that we'll have on Fast Money. It's just not, you know what I mean? Like, like, like that's why I love seeing you in, in that kind of venue. But when I think about that, and I think about what you said about inflation, that the seeds were sown in 2018, right, with trade wars and tax cuts and, and all that. 
That's what we get on the other side if there's a different administration, right, in 2025. And so, you know, a lot of these fears about inflation will only get worse. I mean, we know that while reshoring is probably a great thing for the U.S. economy long term, especially because of our demographics, let's say relative to China, relative to Europe, it will be a good thing for us. But in the near term, it's going to be inflationary. And maybe that inflation, though, is the thing that keeps the economy humming along, is one of those things that actually actually bucked the trend last year. Steph pushed back at you and said the consensus was for a recession in 2023, right? And risk assets kept on going higher, which brings me to a couple of these notes, Liz, that I saw over the weekend. Okay, this was in the Wall Street Journal. It was about um, Hotsius. He was the chief economist over at Goldman Sachs talking about his upbeat view for the economy this year, which was actually out of consensus last year. He was one of the few. Like oftentimes we've said, almost everybody got it wrong. And Guy and I, we've gone out of our way, as you have. We are not economists, okay? We are market participants and we are pundits and we don't run the models and we don't have the the access to the data the way most economists are supposed to do. We're kind of keying off what some of those economists are saying and what the strategists are saying, right? And then there was also an article in Barron's over the weekend. What if the economy is actually getting stronger? We'll put them both in the show notes. So Talk to us, Liz, about the fact that maybe a strong dollar, maybe high real rates, okay, maybe, you know, with the backdrop of an economy that's doing better, what most feel, and everything that Guy just said about, you know, about a consumer that's feeling pessimistic, maybe that's still okay for the broader economy, you know what I mean? Because some of the dynamics that are in place for multi-years, maybe 10 years, you know what I mean? That, like, maybe there's some structural difference about this economy. Maybe. Uh, I mean, I I would agree there's probably a difference about this economy versus economies of the past. That's always the case. And I would also venture to guess that people that were in the soft landing camp, even when it was out of consensus, if you really dug into the details about why they were in that camp or what they expected that to look like, it probably was a lot like this, where they expected there to be some softening. They expected there to be some tightening up, but not enough that would take us into a recessionary environment in the unemployment rate, in inflation, the consumer would would survive, maybe not be as thriving, but surviving. And I think that's probably where we are right now. Also, I think maybe we should be careful not to overinflate some of the negative news, right? And I think it's it's easy to find. And that's where we are in this period right now. But I would also say that this is very characteristic of late cycle in all the ways. It's characteristic of late cycle in the disagreements that we have with people who are soft Mm -hmm. landing, hard landing. It's characteristic in the M&A activity. It's characteristic in the stocks that are leading. It's characteristic in the valuations, right? All of it is very clearly, in my mind at least, late cycle. And this debate will continue until one of those two things changes. I continue to believe that the business cycle never gets canceled. The business cycle will continue. It just takes longer than we think. And certain phases, you can never figure out how long each phase is going to be. You know, I love listening to Elizabeth talk. I mean this sincerely. And, you know, she she says a lot of things that obviously I walk away and I think a lot about. But she just said something, you know, sometimes we overemphasize the negative. And she's 100% right when she says that I am as guilty as anybody, if not on top of the list. But I'm also cognizant of the fact that, you know, there was a period of time where people were, I think, sort of de-emphasizing and sort of looking past some of the glaring negative things that were out there. And obviously, when things sort of went pear-shaped, they were left not holding the bag, but left having to answer a lot of questions from people saying, why didn't you warn us? So when she's right in saying that, 
you know, I know for a fact that I overemphasize the negative. I'd also rather err on the side of caution there and let people see some of the things that they should be concerned about than to pretend they don't exist at all, Dan. We had this conversation with Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley on Fridays on the tape podcast. And and I think it's really important to kind of differentiate a little bit between being a market pundit, a market participant, and that of a strategist and that of somebody who's helping folks kind of dictate how they manage their money. We made the point with Mike is that he has multiple constituencies, right? So he is the CIO, right? He's also chief equity strategist, right? And so you think those are different folks that are listening to those sorts of things. And then he's also out there in the media. And, you know, it's funny, and you and I know this so well, is that sound bites are not particularly nuanced. And that's what a lot of folks end up, you know, their, their fine work that they spend a lot of time doing a lot of research based on a lot of data and then putting money to work and then writing long reports and then doing long conversations with, you know, investors and the like. And it gets kind of ground down into a soundbite and people make their own decisions about those sorts of things. But I want to make one point, Guy, I want to get your takeaway from Mike's what's different this time, and this was him rebutting me a little bit when we think about this AI bubble. And like, let's be honest, a bubble doesn't have to sound like a negative thing. I mean, people can make lots of money in bubbles as cash and and capital is being attracted to a, a big secular ship. That happened in the late 90s with the internet. And, you know, a lot of the kind of value that was accrued in the stock market obviously went away in 2000 and 2001 and 2002. And it took 14 years for the NASDAQ to get back to the highs. Okay. But Mike made this point, Guy, and I want your take on this. Back then, it was debt-fueled. This time, it is equity-fueled by some of the largest companies on the planet, right? So that's a big difference here because when the air comes out of the bubble, and it will come out, it doesn't mean that the NASDAQ is going to be down 75% or the S&P has to get cut in half. Different things can happen this time around. No, it's interesting. You're 100% right. Well, Mike was right, and you're right to bring that up. It's equity-based, so people are using their stock as currency. And you know what? Good for them. That's what you should be doing. Of course, it's not like debt has gone away. I mean, there's debt all around. As a matter of fact, U.S. consumer debt now in aggregates north of $17.5 trillion, made up by a number of different things, credit card debt being $1.15 trillion, of which the average rate on a credit card loan effectively now is north of 21 and a half percent. You know, you just think about those numbers and it's staggering on top of which, again, and we bring this up, there's $9 trillion effectively of paper that's going to roll off over the next 11 months and a trillion and a half dollars worth of basically you know, the the wrong side of the equation, you know, the the deficit that they're basically need to cover. So talk about $10 trillion of paper that needs to be rolled. Now, as I said with Mike, and I think Liz would agree with this as well, there will be a buyer of this paper. U.S. debt will be bought. The question is, at what rate, which is one of the many reasons I think rates are going higher in this environment as well. So yes, a lot of things to be optimistic about. And you brought up the fact that it's not debt induced, it's stock induced, but there are a lot of things to be concerned about as well. Yeah, the, to the buyer of the paper, there there will always be. And I think people hyperbolize a lot about that, you know, oh, there's so much debt at some point, there's going to be a default and the US is not going to be able to do this anymore. That I just don't think that that's true. I don't think it's possible. I think it will always be a transaction, but it may start to be at really unattractive levels. It may start to be at rates that are just not sustainable, not just not sustainable for the economy, but because because we use the 10-year treasury as a peg for a lot of those things, but not sustainable for the government to service their own debt. And then it just becomes this snowball, which is what we're already in, needing to issue more debt in order to cover the money that they owe on the already issued debt. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So I do think that rates are likely, at least at 
the 10-year portion of the curve, so belly and beyond, let's say, are likely to stay higher than what we've been used to. And, and look, that may be okay. If the economy is in fact getting stronger, and if we are more resilient than I've believed over the last year and a half or so, then we may be able to sustain those rates. We've done it so far and it's been okay. But this year, I think what's happening is that you're seeing companies scramble a little bit and grasp at some straws to maintain their margins. And they've pulled it off and that's okay as well. But that can't go on forever, especially with persistently higher discount rates. And, you know, Elizabeth mentions the economy. I think we all understand that the economy is effectively the consumer. And again, if you think the unemployment rate is going to stay below 4%, or let's just say, you know, hover around 4% for the foreseeable future, I'll play the game. You know, but as Liz said earlier in this show, on the margins, she's seeing some things that are sort of um, concerning on the state level. And seemingly, I don't want to say every day because that is a bit of hyperbole, but every week we're seeing layoffs from major companies in different industries in this country. And it's just a matter of time, again, my opinion, before it manifests itself in the overall unemployment rate. You know, I'm still one of these people that think the unemployment rate is going to go up in a market fashion. Now, I thought that last year as well, that was wrong, but it doesn't mean it's not inevitable. And I think that's where we're on the precipice of as well. On the rate front and, and what you said about insider selling, there's two different things going on that I think are pretty interesting. Look at all the M&A guy. You and I have been talking about it. There was an article in Barron's this weekend, recent big deals stir hope that M&A winter is ending. Nearly $300 billion worth of U.S. deals so far announced. Over a thousand transactions. You know the deals. Capital One, that was a $35 billion deal for Discover. Synopsis was in a $34 billion deal. Diamondback, Hewlett Enterprises for Juniper. So a lot of interesting things going on as CEOs seem to be selling or, you know, the powers that be that own a lot of these stocks. There's a lot of deal flow going on in this high yield environment with equity markets at all time highs. So some conflicting cross currents there. Thoughts on on that? Because again, we know that corporates don't always get strategic M&A correct, but the fact that they're doing it now with yields where they are, um, I'm wondering what it says. And obviously there's some politics probably playing into this too. That is a great point that you bring up. We're starting to see this renewal or uptick in M&A. I think that's, listen, that's clearly a good thing. It shows what I think it shows is some some sense of visibility for a lot of these companies and their willingness to sort of go out a bit on the risk curve. Now, with that said, you know, it's interesting to see the areas that we've seen M&A in. Obviously, a lot's going on in the healthcare front. Big Cap Pharma buying up some of the smaller um, biotech names, which I totally understand. A lot of this is going on in the energy front as well. And I think on the energy side of things, Dan, it's because valuations are so depressed and it really does make a lot of sense. So there's positive signs and there's pushbacks to the positive signs and then there are pushbacks to the negatives as well. And I think that's why the market is, at least let's put it this way. That's why people that have a negative bend are struggling so much to figure this thing out. Yeah. And, and Liz, the, here's a story that, that caught your eye. It caught Guy and my last week, and I thought it was interesting. We wanted to get your take on it because the, the, the headline hit as we were on Fast Money last week that Amazon was jo- joining the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And to be frank, you know, like that company is a logistics company for all intents and purposes, if you think about it from just kind of how they think about retail and how they think about tech and everything like that. So maybe that does deserve to be in there. But my friend, 
first thought was, because I went to the Perplexity app. Guy, you have that. You went to your favorite um, application store, right? That's what you're using to replace your Google searches for the most part. And I went there during the show and it was interesting. You know, Microsoft was added to the Dow in 1999, which I think is fascinating. And Bank of America was added to the Dow in February of 2008. You can't make that up. Okay. So just think about what happened in the following year to both of those companies and both of those industries. What was your initial thought here, Liz? This is a phrase guy uses. I hearken back to my days as a due diligence analyst. And we used to look at Morningstar ratings a lot for mutual funds or other investments. And you get a five-star rating, a four or five-star rating. Chances are in the next two years, you're knocked down to two or three stars. And that's just how the cycle works. Similarly, you got a one or two-star rating. Chances of you moving up in the rankings over the next couple of years are very, very high. This is like scientifically proven. It happens almost the same way every time. Here's then what I, I looked up. I wanted to know exactly what the criteria was to be included in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's not very scientific. This is a statement from their website. While stock selection is not governed by quantitative rules, a stock typically is added only if the company has an excellent reputation, demonstrates sustained growth, and is of interest to a large number of investors. That last part is what stuck with me, of interest to a large number of investors. So this is, in some ways, a popularity contest, which is also a different way of saying it's a momentum contest. So if we are including stocks because they've had really strong momentum and they've had a lot of interest from investors, that's okay because they're bellwethers. People are paying attention to their stock price. But if there's not that much fundamental basis and not that much quantitative basis for including them, then this is a sentiment game. In which case, some of the stats that you just said, Dan, about Bank of America and Microsoft, perhaps not all that surprising the way that it went for the next five to 10 years. Because if it is a momentum game and if, if it is a sentiment game, the hardest part is to call that inflection point. It is absolutely a popularity contest. And what it comes down to is, you know, for the Dow Jones specifically, we don't spend a lot of time on this, but, you know, if one of the components is not pulling his or her weight in terms of their price, they will be replaced because it needs to be this self-fulfilling, you know, lower left, upper right type of index that people feel good about. I mean, that's just factually true. So when you see it's like the premier league in soccer, which I think you're a fan of, Dan, if you suck and if you're on the bottom third, you're going to get bounced and somebody else is going to come in. And that's the same way with the Dow Jones. Well, I'll just tell you this guy with my call and the S&P of late, I feel like I'm going to get relevant relegated off of the uh, CNBC Fast Money desk and the On the Tape podcast desk. But I want let, let's finish with this. And I think this is interesting. So we have a 10-year yield at 4.27%. Okay, guys, the last time the 10-year yield was at this level, okay, the S&P was at 4,600, which is the prior high from July of 2023, right? We know that the prior all-time high was a bit higher. It was uh, 4,850 from early 2022. Okay, so here's my take. Okay, if I'm warming up to the fact that the economy is not going to take an absolute shit at this moment, okay, you know what I mean? But and maybe structurally there's some things that are a bit better, but I think the stock market is overvalued, especially where rates are, right? So to me, a 10% pullback in the S&P 500 back to 4600, which was the breakout level from early to mid December when yields, right, were the last time where they are right now, on their way lower because the expectation of rate cuts was getting ramped up based 
based on Fed speak and the way investors were deeming the current economic environment and the way the data was going, to me, 4,600 makes a perfect sense. Down 10% guy with yields where they are right here. I think a lot of investors could feel good about adding back maybe a bit more aggressively with the idea that if we were going to maybe pull back towards those 4,200 or something like that, then you would dollar cost average. So if you're going to go from 5,100 to 4,600 to possibly worst case scenario, 4,000, well, that would be a great way to get back into the market at a time where you can have some, I guess, assurance that this secular shift of this AI move that's going to last four years would be a good way to kind of add back into it. Because again, those stocks that have been driving the upside gains over the last three months have basically taken on that much more importance in the broader index. So think about that relative to rates and think about as a way to kind of, if you missed it, that would be the best case scenario for longer term. If you've missed it, if you've been sitting on your hands, obviously, for the, you, you're looking for an entry point. I think the point you're making, this is not an ideal entry entry point by any stretch of the imagination, you're looking for lower. Of course, the problem is, and I've seen this happen dozens of times over the years, are looking for lower prices until they get them. And the reasons they get them are never the reasons they envisioned. And things seem a lot scarier uh, than they ever would have dreamed. So when things do go down to those price levels, instead of doing exactly what you just said and getting in with both hands, people are typically gun shy because the reasons were terrifying to them. So it works in theory. I've, what I've seen firsthand is it never really works in practice. Well, and I think there's also a sense of the higher something goes, the further it can fall. So a little 10% pullback here might not seem like very much. And you have to think about the definition of what's a dip, what's a correction, what's a concerning pullback. It's also about the velocity of the pullback. So if it's slowly grinding lower and there hasn't really been bad news, maybe that is just a right sizing of valuations. If you've got some bad news and we've got stuff that's starts falling off a cliff, I would sort of stay out of the way for a little while just to see what happens. But the way that I usually think about it is if there's stocks that feel untouchable right now, and there are quite a few that feel untouchable right now, just at these levels of valuations. And I think most investors can agree that we've probably gone up a little too far in a handful of names. If they feel untouchable, what is the point that is considered a dip? I usually think it has to be beyond 5%. I'd like to see it in that 7 to 8% range. And then I start to consider dipping in, but just little by little. And if it does continue to fall, you've already started the habit of dipping in. And then you just congratulate yourself. You're getting lower and lower prices as you go, right? But I think starting the habit, getting started is the hardest part. And it's always more difficult to re-enter the market. It's actually quite easy to pull your money out of the market when you're scared. It's very difficult to put it back in. Yeah. And I guess the point there I'm just making is as these broad indices, you know, when you think of these, you know, top 10 names, they make up over 30% of the S&P 500. They make up over 50% of the NASDAQ 100. And so if just a few of those cool off a little bit, they lead to the downside. We know that breath hasn't been particularly great, especially during earnings season. So they've been driving a lot of the performance. If you did have, you know, a 10% dip to 4,600 in the S&P, you couldn't think of a better spot to start dollar cost averaging into to play these very themes because the themes will broaden out over time. That's kind of my two cents there. So we'll leave it at that. We had a great conversation here, people. We got earnings. We got economic data. We got a lot of sentiment. We got, what would you call it? The, the hormones, something or other here, Liz? Because feel-good hormones. The feel-good hormone. That is in the markets here. I think we have a, a title. Guy and I had a great conversation with Kara Swisher. It's going to be in the OK Computer feed on Wednesday. If you want a free copy of her burn book, leave a review at OK Computer. 
send a screenshot to contact at risk reversal and stick around on the other side of the break. You're going to have a little preview of that conversation. It was fab guy. Thanks folks. Stick around because I think you'll enjoy this. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually with an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers their community oversees an astounding 48 trillion dollars and 16 trillion dollars in assets respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Guy and I had a great conversation with Kara Swisher that will be in the OK Computer podcast feed. We're going to give you a little teaser, so enjoy it here. The full interview will drop in that feed on Wednesday morning. So if you like what you hear, go subscribe to that feed and get yourself a free book. In the mid-90s, which is right around the same time you started covering Mm -hmm. the internet, I was the youngest guy on a trading desk and they looked at me and they said, figure out what AOL, YHOO, XCIT, figure out what these things do because they are moving around a lot and we see a lot of opportunity to trade them. And so it's interesting. That's how I found out about you when you started covering that. Traditional media, at least the business media, it didn't really know how to cover stocks like that at the time. So what you were doing was putting faces to some of the names of these really generally young males, you know what I mean? And what these big visions were. And it really helped, you know, I, I think it helped me understand. There was nobody there. There really wasn't covering this stuff. There were a few reporters, but you know, it was, you know, John Markoff was around, but he was covering computers and software at Microsoft, particularly and Apple, you know, but that was a different era. The computer software uh, hardware era was was different than the internet. The internet sh- shifted it rather profoundly because the computer mattered but didn't, right? That it, you had to have one obviously, but what mattered more was Wi-Fi networks and bringing it all together. And so it required a different kind of reporter and in the book I talk about what my theory was was I'm telling you the time, not what's in the watch. I, who cares what's in the watch? It doesn't matter anymore. It's like it's like understanding what 
the implications of a car without understanding an engine. You don't need to understand an engine to understand the impact of the car on American society on, in lots of ways. And so that was my goal. Is I There was a lot of techies covering this stuff, very tech-oriented people and chips and things like that. And as important as those things are, and they are absolutely, you know, see NVIDIA, it was not important. What was important about it is what it was going to impact, whether it was sports or communications and or commerce. I think I did bring that to it. I cared about the tech in as much as what it would do. And that was different from other reporters. And there was nobody there. That's why they all saw me because nobody was paying attention to them. They really weren't, except for the money. Then when the money started to be made, you had all the Wall Street people going, oh, this is a Ponzi scheme. Or And some of it was, by the way. Well, a lot uh, of it w- was in 1.0. It wasn't as much of a Ponzi, of just built on really shaky foundations. But That's this correct. was one of the things that, again, I found really interesting. And you know, the book talks about that you are a student of history and you apply mm-hmm. that knowledge to yeah. a lot of the stuff that you're looking at and reporting on. And it gives you some sort of framework. But this quote was really interesting to me. I've determined where tech goes depends on who makes the decisions. This book is about those decision makers and Mm -hmm. your ability to kind of flesh them out in a way. Talk to us a little bit about that because, you know, Web 1.0, some of those folks made it into 2.0, but the hundred billionaires today, you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. are very different than some of the pioneers of of the 90s. And so talk about those decision makers. I mean, first there were the sort of the people that that, like put together the internet itself. Like those people were different. There were tons of companies, but there were a lot of people, the internet service providers that just, Mm -hmm. you know, that's who hooked you up. And that was a very different that was much like which had come before. But what happened later was the commercialization and the consumerization. And I think that's why AOL was so attractive to me. It just happened to be out in Vienna, Virginia, where, and I worked at the Washington Post. And most of the stuff the Post covered in tech were consolidators for the government, you know, contractors and things like that, that would put in giant government data systems, whether it was the Social Security or the IRS. And I, I did not write about that. Like, who cares? Like, in that, for me, who cares? And this new thing was happening, and it was not called the internet, it was called online services, if you recall at the time. And David Ignatius became the head of the business section at the time. And he intuitively understood this was different. And he's like, young person, go out there. You know what I mean? You, young, you get it. You know how to use a this and that. And I already had displayed an interest in mobile phones. Um, I was obsessed with our Washington Post one. I was really interested in mobile phones. And I saw them immediately as a game changer, right? You could make the connections that if everyone had a mobile phone, they wouldn't have a desk phone. They wouldn't be in the office. And I would do things like that and sit there. And there was one, there was a teletype machine, you know, that in a newsroom, the old, the news doesn't come through until it's typed on one of those idiotic typewriters, essentially. And we had one at the post right at the front of the post. And I looked at it and everyone, you know, it's a very delightful, romantic version of a newspaper. The reporters run to it and then pull it off and then look at it. And I was like, what the hell do you need that for? If you have the internet and they're like, that's the newspaper. I was like, you don't need that. You don't need that. Why are you tearing off a piece of paper? And I used to wander around being such an irritating young person. And and my whole premise when I, once I went to see AOL was, oh, everyone's going to have access to every piece of information. And it was a series of knowledge. Like I went to Duke and I downloaded a book and the tech person didn't get it, but I did. I was like, oh, then you don't need a book. If you can, if you can put it in a digital format and then that digital format becomes like a book. And then I thought trees, you know, I know it sounds dumb, but I, you know, it iterated through my mind, all the the industries that we affected and most importantly, the one I worked in. So when I saw Craigslist, I was like curtains 
fucking curtains for the Washington Post because I had covered retail before that. And I'd watched as all the retailers in Washington died, Garfinkel's, all these retailers, that you, Heckinger, you don't, you, you remember them. They were, they were actually, I think that was a public stock. And that was one of their businesses. So brand advertising, uh, display advertising was dying in the, in the physical newspaper. Walmart didn't advertise and was highly technical. That's how they figured out how to get people. Class, Craigslist was going to kill classifieds and free news was going to kill the subscription. And I was like, oh my God. And everyone was wandering around taking stuff off the teletype machine. And I was like, Pompeii, that that volcano looks kind of scary. Like, I think it's going to blow. That was just a little snippet of our interview with Kara talking about her new book, The Burn Book. For the full convo that will drop on Wednesday, go to the OK Computer feed. If you like what you hear, leave a review, like the podcast, Give us a five star. Take a screenshot of that bad boy and send a screenshot to contact at risk reversal and you'll get a free copy of that burn book. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.